Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and today I'm joined by security experts. Kelly Nangler, and I'm not a fan of Barcelona football. Hi, this is Mike Buckby, and I'm not a fan of getting plastic surgery in Brazil. Hi, I'm Forrest Temple, and I just want to thank the Bothan spies who died to bring us this information today. <laughs> so we're saying goodbye to 2016 and hello to 2017. And on today's show, I want to speculate on a few things we'll likely see more of next year. There was a detailed article in the New York Times about the alleged hacking of the DNC and how it tried to influence the election. And without getting into the politics of it, let's focus on a few of the teachable moments. For me to start, I think a good question to ask is, if you were any kind of organization, if the FBI called you and told you that your network's vulnerable how would you respond to that if there's no process in place? And and if there's a process in place, how would you know to take it seriously? I guess my first step would be to figure out if it was actually the FBI calling, because there's so many like weird scams around stuff like that. But yeah, that would actually be my first step. I thought Microsoft usually called to tell you that your computer was infected with a virus. You just have to give me your credit card number and it'll be okay. Well, Microsoft, there's other scams with the IRS calling you. There's scams with the FBI calling you. And like, there's a lot of stuff with like fake FBI warnings that were more or less like extorting money and Bitcoin out of people based on like malware ads and stuff. So exactly that. Like the thing that stood out, I think from that, uh, we were talking about that New York Times article, the one about like the DNC, like help desk person who like received the call. The thing that really stood out to me there is I was thinking, like, you know, what kind of companies, like, if somebody calls in, say, from the FBI, you know, let's say even they are, what does the receptionist do when they answer the phone? You know, where do they send that call? Do they take a message? Who do they send that message to? You know, I think in this case, they transfer them to the help desk. And it seems like, you know, I don't really have any judgments to make about this particular person who spoke to the FBI, special agent who called in, but... What if it was somebody low enough on the help desk that really didn't even know where to start in terms of how do I verify this is real or not? You know, whether it's FBI or how do I verify that there's some kind of attack underway? Who would even talk to in the organization? I mean, a big enough organization, the help desk could be so removed from the information security group. Maybe they don't even have the lines of communication there to like pass off a tip like that. Now, there's just a lot of questions there. I think different organizations. I don't know if there's like a, a cohesive story on like how the processes should be organized. To me, what was interesting and what this, I agree with everything you said. And I think then the next step is what do you put in place? And I think what you put in place is a security response team. Yeah. And that's, that doesn't have to be like, you know, six people in a bunker somewhere. It just means that, oh, like there's a recognized thing that there's security at your company name. And that's a known place. And when you get an email to that, it goes to the right people, that there's a thought behind it, that it is something to be aware of. And, you know, there could be communications that come into you about that. I think that's what I would take away from this, that because most of us are not running the DNC, at least I don't think so. So it's much more like, oh, well, what do you do as your, your small company or medium sized company to do something reasonable? I think just kind of connecting it back to last week's show, if any of our listeners listened to that one, hopefully they did. But if you look at some of the standards that come out, like the NIST standards, a lot of them recommend having some type of plan in place. And it also goes into the regulations as well, too, is that they recommend having some plan, any plan in place on how to deal with this. And it's something that companies should strive for, even if they don't have it currently, because it's an important part of security overall. And 
it's difficult to put in place, especially if you're a smaller organization, but it's, it becomes critical in the long run. And so there's good guidance out there for, for trying to implement something like that uh, available to people who don't have it. Well, in the article, they talked about that they're a nonprofit and they lacked a security budget. And I was wondering how much of it is process and how much is it of having good IT security people and the software to help with this? Well, it's actually a really good point about like, oh, they didn't have the budget for it, you know, and they're a nonprofit. I mean, certainly I don't know the numbers on, on what their budget is, but I certainly know the DNC is, is big enough that they have, you know, a fair amount of budget overall available. And the question is, well, how do they prioritize it into security? You know, they say they didn't have the money available, but I would suspect pretty strongly that it's more a matter of they didn't prioritize the information security part of their budget to cover their needs. I think, you know, security is the pinnacle example of what I think all of IT faces, which is that it's an investment and it's an investment that doesn't pay off and that it's hard to see the results from unless there's something disastrous that, you know, you think about something that's maybe less controversial, like backups, like Everyone needs backups. You need to back up your servers, but you don't really pay the price of not doing backups until there's a disaster. Similarly, security, like you don't pay the price until it's the end of it. And the Russians have broken in and taken the election from you. The other thing, too, is that it's not like the DNC has ever had an issue where somebody broke in and stolen things before. <laughs> yeah, that article actually had that photo of like the file cabinet from Watergate, like right next to like one of the servers that was like supposedly breached or something. You're saying the DNC didn't have a file budget? <laughs> you know. Yeah, their padlock budget. Yeah, no padlock budget for to keep the... One thing, actually, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, you say, like, it's, it's one of those investments that, like, people don't always have a great idea of, like, oh, what's the return on my investment? You know, it's like, do you ever see a spy movie where they're talking about the CIA or something, and they're saying, like, well, you know, you never see our success. You only see the failures, right? And so maybe there's, like, you know, a million successes for every failure. You just don't know. And I mean, that's kind of how information security is. That's how data security is. You know, you're not seeing all the successes because every success is like not a blip on your radar. You know, something I was uh, passing around today about this was we have a sysadmin guide on our site and build as like everything that's not in the manual sysadmin guide. And one part of it is communicating out to executives in your organization. And a lot of it is like when something else happens to a competitor, that's a horrible thing. Or, you know, from another industry that you send it around to say like, oh, here's this thing that happened for real to these other organizations. And then here's what we're doing internally already to deal with it as a way to not justify so much, but just like highlight the good work that, you know, security and infosec teams are doing. Well, once we've communicated a problem, let's say we've had a couple of successes, high fives. But if you do have a problem and you're communicating it to higher ups, there were three questions I thought were excellent questions that one of the cyber crimes prosecutor asked. One was, what data was accessed? Two was, how was it done? Number three, how do we stop it? Do you think those questions are good, bad? You would agree if you had to change one of the questions and prioritize, what would it be? So I actually think I, you know, I don't want to dispute any of those three, but I do kind of want to add one in there. And it's, how do we know? Right. Because on the one hand, you know, we're talking here about like, oh, this was like an FBI tip. Right. And, you know, we, we know it's legitimate now, I suppose. But 
or we know legitimately it came from the FBI. But how do we verify that it is the FBI? In a perfect world, how would we have verified that this special agent calling into the DNC, you know, was an FBI special agent? How do we know that it's maybe any kind of law enforcement? How do we verify that kind of thing? And even if we verify it, how much do we trust it based on what organization they represent? I think that brings up a lot of interesting questions. I mean, I think all three of those questions are are fundamental, and I think Forrest's point is is entirely correct. But if we start looking at the questions, you know, what data was accessed, how was it done, and how do we stop it? That begs the question, how do we know it was accessed? I mean, the FBI called and said it was out there. But there are a lot of interconnecting pieces that were missing to answer these questions. Obviously, we know what data was accessed because it's gone now. It's somewhere else and someone's found it. But how was it done and how do we stop it? Those are so fundamentally intertwined that it's in a lot of organizations, I feel like struggle with this because it's very, very difficult to cobble that together. And that's why we have so many organizations that specialize in computer forensics. And even then, it's sometimes very, very difficult to figure it out, especially if you look at some of the newer trends in attacks, trying to kind of live off the land, not download the tools that are historically associated with attackers, but live on things built into the operating system like PowerShell. And it makes it incredibly difficult anymore to try and answer some of those questions because it simply is is not recorded anywhere in a lot of cases. So I agree with all that. And I think you're right that the, the end point of all these questions is a security incident response report that goes through a million different things. But in the immediate post like breach, I think it's very important to figure out not just what data was accessed, but the value of that data. Like it's a very different thing if the DNC's website had been compromised and all the HTML, the static HTML files taken off. Like, okay, that's not great, but it's it's a public website. It's fine. Versus, you know, all their emails versus their internal strategy files. And so that classification of, you know, sensitive, public, easily shareable stuff, I, I think that's really important as well. Opposite of figuring out the value of your organization's data we know for sure that financial data is prime in the black market. And some researchers found a way to quickly compile your information about your credit card number, and they'll be able to figure out the CVV, your zip code. And researchers informed Visa, but then they replied and said that, well, the researchers didn't take into account the multiple layers of fraud prevention that exist within the payment systems. And towards the end, the conclusion might be maybe we should live in a cardless world like Apple Pay and Android Wallet. I wonder if that's the solution. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on the piece. People talk about having, you know, multiple factors of security that it's something you know, something you type in. So these are two different pieces of data that need to be matched up, the credit card number and then the verification code, the three little numbers on the back. And so there's a lot of systems that keep those separate so that if there's a data breach and all the credit card numbers are stolen, well, you still have to put this other number in in order to unlock it. And so... You know, if you imagine someone walking into a store with a credit card, well, they can only test one and then go to another store. And, you know, so to figure out what the CVV code is, they put it into thousands of different e-commerce websites simultaneously. And so they wrote a program to, to do this. And it's something that was never expected. So your question about, oh, well, Apple Pay or go on, those are things that were designed like inherently with the thought of, oh, this is going to be on the internet, there's going to be a lot of potential for these different things, and some of the credit cards never were. So just very interesting, and I wonder what other types of attacks are out there that could be done by like spreading out over thousands of websites to, to verify details. 
Yeah, Mike, you you kind of summed up the point that I was going to make. I mean, it's it is really interesting, sort of taking the approach. Not exactly a big data approach, but almost kind of like leveraging the power of uh, distributed networks to to do this attack again, running it as many places as you possibly can just to kind of crack it the same way that theoretically they do with cracking hashes and things like that. The more systems you have running it and making the attempt, the faster it's going to be. And I think I think the article said it was something like six seconds, which is you might as well just give up at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, what is it? Those CVB, I think each company is like a slightly different acronym, but you know, is it three digits? Yeah. I mean, what's that mean? Just under 10,000 permutations? My math is terrible, but like, you know, that's like what? Like 9,999 possible permutations? No, no. Under 1,000. Yeah. My math is terrible. Yeah. So 999 (laughs) permutations, right? So, I mean, all you have to do is try less than a thousand times, you know, at a botnet. I mean, that's got to be the easiest thing in the world. Even American Express, that's one more digit. That's where I was getting. I swear that's where I was getting at 9,999. But like, you know, you do that and that's the easiest thing in the world to set up a thousand tries of something. Come on. What's interesting to me is like, if we said, all right, you know what we're going to do this afternoon? We're going to build one of these for ourselves and like how quickly you could do that. And there's, you know, standard things out there like Stripe payment forms that do this sort of like quick check. And so you could go to a website like Built With and then find easily 10,000 sites that all have the Stripe uh, verification form on them. And then you could, you know, pull those into a little script and clean them up and then write a little input that takes the credit card details and the CVV and threads it out and puts like one to each of these and returns true. Like you could trivially do this on your own in an afternoon. Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect that they won't let us do that here. That's my, my expectation. <laughs> but but you're right. I don't think it's like in any way outside of, you know, the technical ability of even just the people of this podcast right now. Well, I don't know. I have a calendar appointment after this that says, like, break all the credit cards. So I think I'm allowed to do this for us. I don't know. It's kind of interesting, too. I mean, it it is very cool that we're moving to an age where, you know, the uh, Android Pay or the you know, Google Wallet or whatever it's called anymore. And um the Apple Pay are starting to to pre-tokenize a lot of this. And that's also the thought with some of the chip cards is to tokenize the payment. And I'm I'm shocked that we haven't started to adopt this in some better way. And what makes me think of that is I remember back in the 90s, one of my friends had a keyboard with a swipe for a credit card in it, like, like you know, like yeah. you would get at a store to help facilitate online payment. And at the time I thought it was a little bit goofy, but thinking about it now. How easy would it be to build in a little accessory card reader in your laptop to plug in your chip card, because we all have them now, to pre-tokenize the payment and kind of just do away with the type of forms? I mean, the endpoint would be a target then, but... Well, I mean, you, know. you already have the technology there with, you know, in the military, they have the CAC cards, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, the, the card readers. I mean, you know, you certainly have like consumer grade card chip readers that obviously the technology is there to go with keyboards if they wanted to do it. There was a market for it. And I do think there's some innovations. Like there's, I think some of the... Credit card companies now let you create a temporary number if you want to put that into, you know, different sites. I think Amex does that, that for each of your services, you can go in and to their site and click a button. It'll give you like a one-off number just to use for Joe Random website that you're buying Barcelona tickets from uh, fraudulently. And, you know, there's been a few like hardware things kind of like that too. So, yeah, I think it'll get better. So speaking of innovations, what do you guys think about Amazon Go grocery store? You can go in and with the use of RFID and an Amazon account, you don't really have to go to a person or a machine to check out. What are some of the security implications behind this new concept store? 
Well, I kind of feel like it's it's similar to the Amazon, you know, their drone campaign where they're they're basically more as a proof of concept, like, hey, this is pretty cool that we can do this, you know, trying to demonstrate something. I don't think they're necessarily trying to really like corner the market on convenience stores and, you know, take out food, but prove me wrong, Amazon. Certainly feel free. <laughs> I thought it was pretty interesting from a security and surveillance perspective. This is a pretty neat, novel application of surveillance technology, essentially. I mean, the system is built on the fact that the store is going to use your movement in the store and cameras to analyze what you've placed in your cart because the items are not tagged with like RFID or anything like that. So if you think about if they can operate this proof of concept that decide you picked up, you know, a handful of apples and cereal and whatnot to charge you correctly... Just think about what that means in other surveillance situations where you can install this somewhere and have a very high degree of accuracy in surveilling people's behavior. My immediate thought was that my kids are going to like smuggle out food from the store and then I'm going to be charged for it. That my daughter will just grab like the super sugar cereals and like make a break for it. I'm like, well, we already paid for it, dad. I'm standing outside. And then you'll go home and Alexa will talk to you and say, Mr. Buckby. Yeah. You didn't pay for this apple. <laughs> Alexa will track me around the house. <laughs> Next thing I want to talk about, though, is I have my Amazon grocery stores. And then instead of driving myself home, I'm going to take an Uber, which is a segue to the next controversial article about an Uber staff was accusing the company of abusing their privacy of their customers where they looked up customer information rather than just the IT security people. And then Uber says that they have admin controls to limit access. And so it feels like it's a he said, she said case. And I'm wondering what a teachable moment for this article would be. Should security practices and ethics be advertised within the organization? And if people see lapses in security, should you voice it? What's the process for that? Well, first off, I mean, who doesn't want to know where Beyonce goes? I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> so what this was talking about was this God view, that Uber had this God view, which was basically a, almost like, like a Google map, if you're familiar with seeing those, with all the routes of all the Uber cars on it and where the cars are and what they're doing and things. And so to my mind, this is very much like a data visualization. It's not something that's like entirely needed. Like it's not like the driver is like looking at this, but it's sort of an admin thing. And in networks, you know, a staple of a lot of things is like the big crazy dashboard that says like how much traffic's going through each port on the switch and how many files are being scanned and all these other things. And that there's this weird line between, you know, metrics and analytics and trying to do like interesting data visualizations and privacy. And while it's certainly appropriate for, you know, Uber to know where Beyonce is, if she dials up for an Uber to come pick her up and drive her somewhere, but it gets less and less useful as that goes out and more and more creepy. <laughs> you can just let anyone spy on anyone. But these things are very hard to tell. I'm thinking just like, you know, if someone's in the QA department and they need to look at the, the live traffic stats, they can look at anyone because anyone could be having a problem. And so there's a very rational argument to be made about that. But at the same time, I think it really needs to be like, you know, good logs and people under particular lists. It says like, oh, this is a celebrity list. We need to, you know, keep people out of this somewhat. So, yeah. I also think that from an advertising standpoint to the public, I agree that some of this 
data is necessary to ensure, you know, optimum performance and track, you know, the business to make sure that they're working as efficiently as possible. But I think it's an opportunity for organizations to really put on display that they respect and care about the confidential data or or at least sensitive data that they handle for their customers and say, listen, we we really do respect this. We use it, but in a respectful manner and only as long as it's necessary. So I think that would go a long way with goodwill to the customers if they implement and show a policy that they treat this data with the respect that it needs to have. And additionally, it becomes good internal policy that if employees see potential abuses of data, they have a pathway to report that and make it known to the company to maybe adjust the policies inside. So there shouldn't be any fear of retaliation or something like that if if this is brought up as a concern. Well, I think that's true, but I think it's hard to sort that out, that it's hard to sort out when, like, we, we talk a lot and there's been a lot of talk and I think very justified talk lately about, like, ethical lapses and, like, responsibility as an IT person and as a developer to do these things. But where exactly are those lines that if you're the developer working on Uber in Topeka, and should you have access to data of Uber San Francisco rides? And if so, should it be anonymized? And if so, how long should you be allowed to, to work with that if you're trying to figure out, like, well, how often do people go from a restaurant back to a residential? Or what are the time periods when people are most active and need the most rides? And it's very hard to tell. I think the celebrity stuff and there's sort of a paparazzi-ish aspect of that. But in most cases, I would say most of this data is okay. Where it breaks down is someone's like stalking someone, which is hard (laughs) to know about, but also hard to sort out like when and how that would happen. I think we have a bad habit as companies to hold on to data forever, just because it might at some point become important later on, but we're not exactly sure. I think part of that in designing systems is there needs to be a business case in place for data retention. It is important for the developers to have it and access it, but there needs to be a place to do it in the right way. And we, I think, tend to hold on to data for much, much longer than we really need to um, to serve those business purposes. So like, here, here's a case in point where I, I think this is rough. So anytime you ask like Google Now for something, and Google for a long time had like a telephone number you could call in and ask questions to and stuff, and they used it basically just to obtain voice data for training. And we've seen a lot of improvement in speech recognition that's mostly comes out of having a mass amount of data, much more so than just a clever algorithm. It's based upon the trends in that data. And so there's a business need for that forever. The more data they have, the more valuable it is and the more they can do data science with it. And it's just hard to know then quite how to deal with it. And so if people want to serve up malvertising to Killian, they put a Beyonce photo or something. <laughs> <laughs> Beyonce is going to be at the McDonald's on the corner of fourth in like 20 minutes. And Killian would go there for sure. He'd buy a big Mac. So I have a bright career as an Uber driver. Then there's ransomware in malvertising piece that happened a long time ago. Then people were storing sensitive data on images. Now another case that Killian found. Yeah, it was a pretty cool article. Malvertising has been around for the longest time, but what they're doing now is in the images they serve up um, in one of the pixels, they're embedding some JavaScript code, I believe. So when the image goes to render on your browser, it'll execute this code there. And in this particular case, it was to drop ransomware on the machine, but it's just, you know, new and exciting innovations to take advantage of a kind of an age old problem that we have. And we have to, you know, obviously render this data in some way. 
and it's just exploiting the engine in the background to again for nefarious purposes yeah so just execution wise i thought this was crazy so a lot of advertising like if i'm going to spend forty thousand dollars to put my ad on your website for the weekend i want to know that it actually you know was seen all weekend so i put my own javascript on your site and say like as a condition of this you have to run this and then that javascript read the image pulled out the code that was malicious and then loaded that so as just very clever and to wrap up, let's go back to the beginning where I was having audio problems. What Barcelona? What about the troops? For our introduction, we had been talking about little things about us that we wanted the public to know based on some of the incidents where we've had our own credit information stolen. In my case, somebody used my card information to purchase Barcelona soccer tickets. So I wanted out there that I'm not a fan of that team, if anybody <laughs> wants to know. <laughs> I shared that I got a call from the credit department of my bank and they said, and they were so nice about this because they weren't sure. And they said, um, are you in Brazil right now getting plastic surgery at a clinic? And I said, <laughs> no, no, I'm actually not. And they're like, okay, so that now that's out of the way. Yeah, we think this is fraudulent and a credit issue and we need to get working on this and get you a new card. I'm going to ask Uber and see if they have any traces of you getting plastic <laughs> surgery in Brazil. Well, when it's I go weird. to Brazil for plastic surgery, I definitely let my bank know ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, and I want them to know the dates that I'm going to be there, you know, because you don't want to get cut off, you know, partway through, you know, half when this fraud detection does kick in. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's the last thing I need, honestly. Yeah. It's yeah. half of a new face. Beyonce was there. That was nice. That was the highlight of the trip. So. So those were some of the articles we thought will probably set the tone for next year. Mike, do you have a tool for sysadmins that they can tinker with during the holiday season? A story we didn't cover was that Yahoo had another horrible data breach. And there was another billion record dump of everyone's passwords and everyone was going crazy. So I just wanted to plug Have I Been Pwned Again, which is from our friend Troy Hunt's. He designed that site and every sysadmin needs to go to it and not just use it for themselves, but there's a way you can sign up for your domain, for your company domain to get alerts. And along with that, Troy also released for us an internet security basics guide, which is awesome. And if there's people in your life who are using computers and maybe not as savvy as yourself, it's a great thing to send over to them. Very accessible. And very much something they could use to figure out, should they trust this website that's selling Barcelona soccer tickets at a great price or not? So that, that kind of thing. One thing to point out is the Troy Hunt course is on YouTube, so it's free to everybody. Yes. And you can free, share it You don't need an email, anything. You just send people to it. So oh, check that out. Thanks to Mike, Killian, Forrest, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to Follow us on Twitter to find some of the stories we're discussing. You can find us at InfoSec underscore podcast. And we'll meet up again in 2017.